0: This episode, we will be looking back in time to Operation Desert Storm and learning about leadership and lessons learned from the perspective of the regiment's most senior soldier and the perspective of the regiment's most junior soldier.
1: Training for war had always been the emphasis in in the second group
0: What were some of the fears or unknowns that you had as a leader or that you saw in the formation and, and how did you handle them?
1: You know, in combat, you can't over supervise. You can only do your job.
0: Somehow, there was two prisoners that were unaccounted for. Our soldiers witnessed
1: a lot of brutality on the part of the Iraqis against their own people.
0: The other thing that stood out to me that's always been the hallmark of a a cavalry unit or a good mounted unit is radio discipline.
1: There are projections that our operation was going to entail huge casualties.
0: Hello, Dragoons. This is Dragoon Six. This year, we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of Operation Desert Storm, and with us, we have a very special guest and episode. It's my distinct honor and pleasure to welcome Lieutenant General Retired L.D. Holder onto Kill Tank Radio, the podcast of the 2nd Cavalry Regiment. He served as the 65th Colonel of the Regiment from 1989 to 1991, and he was the regimental commander that led the 2nd Cavalry Regiment during Operation Desert Storm. Sir, thank you so much for joining us, and for the audience who doesn't know you, please give us a little bit of your background.
1: Uh, Hello, Dragoons. It's good to be with you. I have a long background in the 2nd Cavalry Regiment. I served with the regiment uh, three times, beginning in the distant year, 1966. I came out of Texas A&M in 1966, went through the basic schools, and my first unit of assignment was 3rd Squadron, 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment, which was then located in Homburg. I was assigned to K K-Troop, and uh, in K-Troop, I got my foundation in the profession, and because of the turbulence of the time, I wound up succeeding to command of that that troop as a second lieutenant after eight months of uh, being in the unit. I returned to the regiment twice more. had a total of eight years in the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment. I was the, on the regimental staff from 77 to 80. I did my squadron command with the Brave Rifles, 3rd ACR in uh, Fort Bliss at the time, and then returned, as Colonel Ewers said, to command the regiment in 89 and to see Germany reunited and the communist regime in Czechoslovakia fall apart was a good experience. When We were called to deploy to Saudi Arabia as part of Desert Shield. I was um, 46 years old. I'd been in command of the regiment for 18 months. I felt very, very confident in the regiment, its soldiers, its equipment, and its training. I retired in 1997, having commanded 3rd Infantry Division, and uh, been the the Commandant of the Command General Staff College and Commander of the Combined Arms Center.
0: All right, sir. Well, thank you so much for that glimpse back into what is a really incredible career with just some amazing achievements. And and to know that you had spent as much time in the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment as you did, and what a profound impact that it had on your development as a leader is really, uh, really special for this particular audience. So I would share with you as well that uh, as you reminisce on the Border Patrol duties of uh, the Cold War days, we currently have a squadron with a field artillery battery and a sapper platoon forward stationed with battle group poland in support of the nato mission doing a a very similar mission a lot of the commonalities are really striking so brings me back to think about the regiment of that time so thank you sir for that that description yeah
1: i'm aware that you guys are doing that and i Great leader development and training to have your squadrons and your and your troops out on semi-independent operations away from the regimental headquarters. It was uh, very important to us in the years when we had that border mission.
0: You know, in terms of leader development, the opportunities there for training, empowered action, for initiative, uh, responsibility are just really tremendous. Okay, sir, so I'd like to just paint the picture a little bit. While this episode will have some history in it, our purpose is to learn from previous Dragoons to look back and find those leadership lessons that can help today's dragoons to succeed. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned that we would look at Desert Storm through the perspective of the regiment's most senior soldier. Clearly, that is Lieutenant General Holder, then Colonel Holder. We also get to look at the perspective of the most junior soldier. So for those of you who don't know, I was a young 19 Delta Cavalry Scout in 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment. I am that most junior soldier. Now, I don't know that for a fact, but I'm fairly certain because I was an 18-year-old Private E-1 that reported to 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment on December 1st of 1990, which was just seven days before I went wheels up with the main body. So if there's someone out there that's more Jr., give me a call and we'll compare notes. Now, I remember that the Iraqi military in 1990 was reportedly the fourth largest in the world. It was well-funded it was battle tested from the Iran-Iraq War. We would likely have to fight in Mop 4 or uh, a quite devious creation that came about in the desert. And, sir, you probably remember this, the dreaded Mop 5, uh, <laughs> which hasn't, hasn't been seen much in the Army. But as we looked at the, uh, the effects or the, the consistency of the mustard gas that we thought we might face, someone came up with the idea that if we put our wet weather suit over the mop gear, That that would make us even more protected, which I don't disagree with that, or at least I don't have a reason to disagree with it. But what I would say is that in the middle of the Saudi Arabian desert, as hot as it is to be in MOP4 is bad enough. And to put that wet weather top and bottom on over top of that in the proverbial MOP5 was a real Low point for the soldiers of the regiment
1: let me, let me add that that was a local initiative. I am learning about mop five this morning. It seems on the face of it a pretty bad idea in the in the desert, but awareness of chemical uh, threats was was very high among the soldiers. It was a a big deal at the time, uh, a serious threat, and I remember whenever I went around railheads or, or ports and found uh, soldiers. Was trained with their first-line supervisors. They were quite often talking about chemical defense.
0: That mop five probably was a creation of of someone uh, someone very near to me in my my local area. But I, I'll tell you, we certainly did that. I don't think uh, it was well thought through, and and probably was just a, a local thing, as you described. I would say and and add for part of the storyline here, along with being the youngest soldier in my troop and the most junior soldier in my troop. While we're on the topic of NBC warfare, I had the dubious Distinction of being the unmasking private. And as you remember, sir, that was the steps that we took. Should your 256 chemical detection kit not work, then you needed a human on call to hand over their weapon and begin the uh, sequential unmasking procedures while the members of the platoon gathered around and watched to see if any chemical effects would be visible. And so I was that guy. You know, when I think about my experience back in the desert, uh, one of the things we would do is rehearse that drill, which was a little bit psychologically devastating.
1: Um, yeah, that's a high honor, of course, to be chosen to, uh, to have that job. I, I remember we also counted on camels to some degree when that was available. You could look around at the, at the wildlife and see if it was actually a threat. That did occur when uh, we had scuds come in.
0: So 2nd uh, so Cavalry Regiment at the time was an Armored Cavalry Regiment, and you referenced that as uh, in your opening, but as an Armored Cavalry Regiment looked very different than the Striker Cavalry Regiment of today. And I wondered if you'd like to describe that formation a little bit for us, sir.
1: Yeah, the Armored Cavalry Regiments were uh, rare and and highly capable units. They're about the size of the Striker Brigades of today, 4,500 soldiers, but uh, they were organized differently. They were optimized for reconnaissance, security, and economy of force. And the organization of the regiment uh, included three armored cavalry squadrons, a regimental combat aviation squadron, and then a number of separate troops, uh, engineers, MI, and and, uh, chemical defense. The three cavalry squadrons had themselves three armored cavalry troops, Bradley's and tanks, a tank company, which was their own reserve, helped them with uh, semi-independent operations, and a howitzer battery. We didn't have the howitzer battalion that you guys have got. We had three separate batteries with the cavalry squadrons. All our battery commanders were second-time commanders. All the maneuver commanders got very good at application of indirect fire. Uh, So you had a really robust combined arms team at the battalion level, the armored cavalry squadron. In addition to that, we had the uh, 4th squadron, the regimental combat aviation squadron, three reconnaissance troops and uh, two attack troops, along uh, along with a general support aviation uh, company, about 76 Uh, Airframes. So it was a big outfit. It was a very agile outfit. It was designed to operate on a wide front. In those missions I mentioned, reconnaissance security, economy of force, characteristically, uh, a regiment would get about a division size sector with a mission to delay or defend even. Normally, we were reinforced for our general defense plan missions. We'd have a tank battalion, a couple of tank battalions, plus about a brigade of, of artillery and a battalion of engineers. And for Desert Storm, we received... Similar attachments. We didn't get the ground tank battalion, but we got an attack aviation battalion of Apache's two tenth Artillery Brigade and the 82nd Engineers joined us to round out the, the Dragoon Battle Group for Desert Storm. We had a lot of other attachments to a big logistics support group that helped us out and their
0: number of smaller units. That helps me as well to visualize uh, exactly everything that the regiment had going for it. Certainly the ACR, the Armored Cavalry Regiment, is, is a much heralded formation for all the reasons you've described. Uh, one of its great advantages is that permanent task organization, a lot of things that our current leaders only experience as we task organize for a particular mission or a particular deployment. But the task organization was, a, was an enduring and permanent structure within the ACR. I'm an armor officer, but I never served with a tank company or a tank battalion. All of my time was with with cavalry
1: units. So there was an element of knowing each other, which also improved the combat effectiveness of those regiments.
0: Uh, You know, I served in Comanche Troop, 1st Squadron, and I remember and that was the first real... Army organization I was a part of. As I said, I arrived, that was my first assignment, and line troop within the ground squadron, it had uh, first and third platoons, was cavalry scouts manning six Bradleys per platoon, and second and fourth platoon was 19 kilo tankers uh, manning M1s, eight per platoon. And then, of course, the troop commander had a tank and the troop XO had a Bradley, and that brought the total to uh, 13 Bradleys and nine tanks. Well, as I fast forwarded, uh, let's see, now 13 years later and found myself serving as a mechanized infantry company commander heading back for Operation Iraqi Freedom, I had a mechanized infantry company and it had 14 Bradleys in it. You can see just the difference in a side-by-side comparison there, just just an amazing amount of, of firepower and the way that the that the platoons, uh, for me and first platoon and our second platoon of tankers, the Bradleys and the tanks working together was, was really something special.
1: Yeah, the ACRs were designed, of course, to operate away from the core main body. And we were sometimes as much as 30 miles ahead of the divisions. We're having big, robust cavalry troops and a lot of combat support that was necessary to do that mission.
0: So, sir, that leads us to our first question. Today's Army needs to be prepared for conflict with a near peer adversary. When you took over the regiment, it appeared to be a similar situation. Could you please talk about how you developed that readiness prior to the deployment and also while we awaited operations?
1: Training for war had always been the emphasis in the Second Dragoons. Every time I served with them, we focused very hard on our general defense plan, which was a specific defensive mission, but we focused on that mission and doing it. Uh, We understood that it was going to be a a very uh, violent and turbulent fight, so we had a set of skills at every level that we trained on, and we ran a cyclical training program to sustain readiness over the year. We always combined fire and maneuver in our our training. The regiment long had uh, standard SOPs for maneuvers, formations, battle drills, and fire support. And that's where we spent our time. We we worked at being very good at those fundamental tasks. And one of the things that made us different from other units in Europe, I guess, was we emphasized platoon gunnery over crew gunnery. It really paid off for us in combat. It's important that you're good at your crew system, that you can fight your your tank, or your Bradley, your striker, whatever your vehicle is. But unless you can deliver fire effectively as a platoon with proper distribution and control, you really won't fight very well. And you saw, I think the benefit of that in all the regiment's combat operations in Desert Storm. The best known of these is uh, Eagle troops fight coming over a rise and, and finding a battalion of Iraqi tanks in front of it. Uh, but at that point, this business about platoon fire, proper distribution and control of uh, tank killing fires was very, very important. They did not double service targets. They did not waste ammunition or have questions about who shot where. They had trained for that,
0: and that's what they did. You know, just from my own perspective, I remember there were many things that I observed in the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment. With it being my first unit, I just thought that's how things were. Uh, But as I got into other units and got into other maneuver scenarios, whether that was at a combat training center or whether that was back in another deployed environment, I had a better and clearer and deeper appreciation for just how good that formation was.
1: When we got alerted for Desert Storm, we sat down and had a training meeting and adjusted our training plan so that we could adapt to offensive operations in the desert. And when we arrived in Saudi Arabia, got through the ports, had our equipment and all that, we had a plan for training. It was going to take us through platoon, troop, squadron, regiment. And, uh, and we executed that plan just short of the regimental exercise when we were called on to attack and shaped exactly what we were doing.
0: You know, being a, a young soldier in the back of a Bradley, a, a dismounted scout and a loader, uh, I will tell you it seemed like everything was wired tight uh, because there wasn't a whole lot of other than the natural confusion of, of just a, a developing scenario in front of you. I think the other thing that stood out to me that's always been the hallmark of a, of a cavalry unit or a good mounted unit is radio discipline, uh, the ability to yep. speak clearly and concisely using the proper words. And, and, and it just was always impressive to me to hear how much discipline there was on the net.
1: Yeah, that was also essential in most kind of operations. And if you're out doing reconnaissance or even economy of force, it's really important that you report and fight at the same time so that your higher headquarters knows what's going on. Uh, when I was going to uh, Germany in 1989 to take command of the regiment, I, I flew out of JFK Airport, and we were all flying in civilian clothes on charter aircraft. And I heard a couple of the NCOs talking to each other, uh, saying, you know, when you get there, you'll, you'll be offered a couple of assignments in Europe. Uh, you want to avoid the ACRs. You train very hard, and there's no slack. My reaction to that, though I said nothing, was this is great. You know, I want that kind of self-selection, where we will need are serious soldiers who understand what they're getting into and are ready to uh, to train as hard as we will. Yeah, I hope you guys uh, maintain the proper cavalry arrogance. Uh, I mean, we were, uh, <laughs> we were loud and obnoxious and uh, very, very uh, proud of ourselves and all that. But beneath that, there's a real solid uh, basis of hard work that, that supports it.
0: Sir, a large portion of our audience today are the fine non-commissioned officers, soldiers, and junior officers of the regiment. Can you discuss the role that they had and why they made 2nd ACR so successful in the desert? The,
1: the non-commissioned officers of the regiment were outstanding. I mean, they had to perform every day, and they were frequently evaluated in how they did that. The regimental sergeant major for my entire command was Sergeant Major uh, Rich Ross, and he was in charge of of NCO professionalism along with the uh, squadron commanders. Uh, What I found out in in cavalry operations, especially because they're widely distributed, is uh, you don't fight effectively at all unless you have good leadership in the squads and sections. There, There can be no weak links in the chain of command. And so we stressed that, and our principle was to delegate responsibility to the lowest level of competence. That is, let the, the leader who's capable of doing the job do the job uh, and take responsibility without a lot of, a lot of supervision. Uh, Sergeant Major Ross's motto for the NCOs was never walk away from a deficiency. Uh, you don't tolerate anything less than perfection in everything you do. That certainly applies to training. So the noncommissioned officers were critical to our success.
0: And, sir, I appreciate you describing that. I'm routinely struck by how many principles are timeless. And when we review the importance of non-commissioned officers and the importance of not walking past a deficiency, no weak links in the chain, uh, everything that you've described is is absolutely pertinent today and things that we continue to stress and emphasize in the regiment of 2021.
1: That's great because, you know, in combat, can't over You can only do your job. So you've got to raise everybody and train everybody and expect everybody to do his
0: own part in that. Sir, deploying tanks from Germany to Saudi Arabia is no easy feat. Can you talk us through the timeline? What were things you did well and, and maybe some things that didn't go so well?
1: Yeah, we had an interesting experience in deployment. We got notified by a television. The President of the United States announced the 7th Corps was going to deploy. We had had a lot of uh, rumors of that, of course, the soldiers are very anxious about that, and it got to be kind of difficult in the late going because uh, there was a perception that leadership knew something that the soldiers didn't and, and weren't passing that out. That was not the case. Uh, when we did get notified, the regiment was told that we'd be second in line for the Corps, that we'd have seven to 10 days before we started moving to port because General Franks, the Corps commander, wanted to get his uh, support command established in theater before he sent in the combat units. That lasted about 24 hours. Uh, I was in Baumberg with the 2nd Squadron in their dining vicinity the the facility when General Franks called up and said, uh, the COSCOM can't go. Uh, they have too many manning shortages. I want you to start deploying tomorrow. And so they sent trains to our squadron stations, and we began ploying the, uh, the next day. And The soldiers were magnificent. The soldiers were just great. I mean, they took that challenge and jumped on it, loaded trains. And we were fortunate in that because we were first in line, we got the roll-on, roll-off ships, the, uh, the best transports in the Army. And we were able to put a squadron on each of six ships which was a, a great advantage uh units behind us were divided between multiple ships they were later in the in the deployment and all that so we arrived in in Dahran in squadron sets soldiers well ahead of of uh, their equipment which was not a good feature of the deployment and um now we got our stuff off combat loaded it we had to paint it for the desert and uh and then arrange transport to move north the local transport getting from Dahran up to our defensive sector was the hardest Part of moving the heavy equipment, there weren't enough transports in, in country. We were leasing everything in, in sight, uh, but it eventually got done. We moved from the ports to the desert between eighth or tenth of December until about the twentieth, twenty third of December. Aviation was a harder part of that because there were modifications that had to be done to the uh, to the aircraft before they could be flown out there uh, into the desert.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I remember, sir, and certainly in the you were talking about SOPs and and training and proficiency. You know, one of the things that is very important even to the strikers. And I know it was important to the ACR was load plans. And so at the individual yeah. unit level, I know one of the curveballs that got thrown to us was we moved those M3A1s out of Germany, but then we turned around and drew those brand new M2A2 Bradleys. Uh, as a young soldier, I didn't know. I just knew that a brand new Bradley showed up with the new car smell. And it was an yeah. infantry fighting vehicle. And because of That's that, right. it did not have, you know, the Cav crew was supposed to be a five-man crew, driver, gunner, BC, uh, loader and dismount. And in the back of that thing it was it was configured for an infantry squad, not for and the CAV variant had less seats and more ammo carriers. And the infantry thing had more seats and less ammo carriers. So we had to modify that. I remember pulling the large middle seat console out and burying it in the desert somewhere and I remember ratchet strapping down as much ammo as we could carry and and uh, laying TOW missiles on top of one another with styrofoam in between and and we loaded that thing to the gills. Just enough space for really the, the loader and the uh, and the dismount uh, to fit in the back there. So that was a that was an interesting wrinkle in the management of that vehicle. And I know that load plans were an important part of the, the training proficiency.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's important uh, that everybody's loaded the same way because you get replacement people, you get replacement vehicles, uh, you move from one vehicle to the next, and it's got to be the same. We got a lot of new equipment during that deployment. We didn't have any GPS when we hit the desert. We didn't even know about GPS, and of course it was essential out there. But sticking with the scout vehicles, uh, we had a much more cap- capable vehicle in the M two. Uh, it shot the tow Two A, which the M threes did not. It had better armor, it had a better engine. Some of the vehicle commanders really didn't want to give away their M threes, but the M twos were a better
0: better track. Yes, sir. And I remember it had a it had a bigger engine. And it was already painted and it was ready to go. It had the new car smell. So I think we were excited that it was uh, maybe, you know, going to be more reliable or more survivable. So, but other than having to get very creative with how to load all of that, all that ammo, uh, that was, that was a, certainly a challenge. Yeah, and I know you guys went back and uh, and dug up those center seats again and, and reinstalled them when we were
1: done. <laughs> we I, a, I, I, there was a funny incident with that. General Schwarzkopf got to the regiment one time late in January. He had an enormous command, but he came out and visited us and um, came to the regimental CP and we gave him the, the briefing. And then he, he flew out to um, to talk to soldiers at L Troop, and uh, he he made a good presentation. Uh, out there at at L Troop and then stood for questions. And he got some of the usual questions, but uh, about the third question long a scout section sergeant said, hey, sir, they're making us take these new Bradleys. Do we have to do that? I like my old track. And General Franks was standing next to me. And we didn't get those Bradleys without a little fight. Uh, first Infantry Division wanted of those two. And General Franks had come down on our side because we were going to be first to make contact with the Republican Guards who wanted us to have that armor. But he looked at me when that, when that soldier asked that question and said, if you don't want those things, I know someone who does.
0: <laughs> uh, but... We- logistics, the sustainment warfighting function continues to be one of the hardest things that we do. And so when we think about Absolutely. multimodal deployment, multimodal transportation, that's exactly what the regiment faces here today in Europe. Moving by over land via roads, that's one of the great operational values of the striker brigade is to be able to move operational level distances out of contact rapidly. Uh, but we also use trains and planes and, and ships. As you described, we've done deployments via ship in the Black Sea in Whatnot, so I think that's all very fitting.
1: But you make a good point about operational mobility. The fact that strikers can move very fast over over considerable distances that matters too. Uh, General Schwarzkopf's move to the west, we moved two corps, 18th and 7th Corps to the west. It was about 200 kilometer move for us in 7th Corps, and um, there's a lot of there's a lot of logistics planning that that supports that, and and it did not go that well. I, I expect that you marched your Troop all the way from Seminole to Richardson when we made that move west. We were supposed to get a lot of head support, but it didn't materialize. So, you know, we could have been done a lot better on theater movement.
0: And I certainly remember a a lot of a lot of time, a lot of long days and nights moving in the Bradley, drinking a lot of warm water out of water buffaloes and eating a lot of MREs. Yeah, sir. So next I'd ask, Iraq was more battle tested recently in its war against Iran in the 80s. What were some of the fears or unknowns that you had as a leader or that you saw in the formation and, and how did you handle them?
1: Well, we we took them very seriously. They'd been in a long war with uh, Iran and had, uh, had shown themselves to be good at uh, concentrating artillery fires and uh, establishing defenses. It was a big army. It was a million-man army. It was good Soviet equipment, especially the Republican Guard. And I was most concerned uh, with the, uh, the problems of of mines, uh, set defenses, and uh, and enemy artillery. Uh, NBC figured into it. We were all concerned about chemical weapons, but the other things had more of my attention. Now they organized as the Russians did. We knew their organizations and we knew their equipment, uh, but um, no, we had not faced in my experience, anything like the bind arms capability the Iraqi army had on paper. When we arrived in Saudi Arabia and began to see some operations of the, of the Iraqis, uh, I became much less concerned. There are projections that our operation was going to entail huge casualties, some of the simulations being run, run in the United States. of uh, The second ACR covering force uh, showed very heavy casualties. We never believed that. Once we uh, got a look at who was on the border in front of us and and reviewed how they were operating, especially after the attack at Kofchee in January, uh, we were not contemptuous of them at all. We respected what they had, but we knew they were really not equipped, organized, or trained to our standards. And and I had no doubt that we were going to win any fight we had with them.
0: From my perspective, uh, just as a young member of squad, a a dismounted scout out of the back of a Bradley, uh, I was concerned about NBC because I was the unmasking private, so that was something near and dear to my heart. Uh, I was concerned about the T-72 main battle tank uh, because we had a healthy respect for it. And even though we had a lot of M1s and and all of the proficiency and capability that you had described in the ACR, uh, that T-72 was something that we had it had a lot of respect for and did not want to necessarily see in any large number if we weren't oriented appropriately. And then, of course, the Scud, the Scud missile got a lot of press. And so there was a lot of, you know, maybe boogeyman about the Scud, whether or not that was ever going to be something that would reach us or find us or deliver chemical munitions. I think there was just a lot of, you know, if you if you were so lucky to get a copy of Stars and Stripes blowing across the desert, it would certainly have a lot of uh, a lot of sensationalism about the Scud missile. So I think for me, it was NBC, the Scud and the T-72.
1: Yeah, I had the same concerns. Now, we dispersed the regiment. You, you'll recall when we were in Saudi Arabia, we set up like we did on the border. That is, we had uh, company-sized camps or positions spread all across the uh, the regimental front. We had a mission to screen the corps, but we protected ourselves from uh, fires by di- by dispersion. And then during the operation, we counted on. On movement to uh, make us hard to target. The other thing that we had that you probably were not aware of is we had a, a very competent uh, field artillery brigade in our support with target acquisition radar. And when we got fired on by artillery, uh, we had rockets going back at them
0: uh, almost immediately. That's incredible. And I do remember being in a in a troop sized tactical assembly area being spread out and, and really so spread out. And this was something that was striking for me as a, as a young man from Ohio that had joined the army not even seven or eight months prior and uh, being away from home for the first meaningful amount of time in my life and finding myself on the other side of the world in the middle of the Saudi Arabian desert. I was struck by just how flat and desolate it was. I remember yeah. thinking that it just it looked almost kind of like a crappy parking lot. It was just flat and dirty and rocky. At least I had envisioned that there was going to be the the Lawrence of Arabia Sands, This you know, kind of the beautiful desert. And it was just like a parking lot. And it wasn't until yeah. the armored vehicles rolled over it that it would break through that crust layer and you'd find some loose sand underneath. But that top level crust, you know, you drove the trucks over them or, or whatever, or you walked across it. It was just like a parking lot. And that impacted us in the vehicles because you couldn't make sharp turns. Otherwise, you'd throw track because you'd get right. into those ruts and uh, and that was a that was a real thing. I remember we we actually threw track in contact once, and it made uh, such geez. a loud pop. I thought we had got hit. We had to get out. It was like a NASCAR pit crew. sir so you talk about training. We uh, we we, yeah. we 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 got that track back on probably in a record time. If we would have if we would have been able to time that, I'm sure there was some sort of army record there. But yeah, I remember that about the about the open desert.
1: There's another thing about the the open desert. I, I there another point that I'd make here, too, and that is that uh, it was not uniform. There were uh, areas of soft sand, subcurs, uh, which would suck you right up. We did a special reconnaissance for 7th Corps to be sure that the division tactical assembly areas were going to be adequate, that big rocks on the surface out there were not going to uh, prohibit the use of trucks. And in the attack, uh, I guess it was 2nd Squadron discovered a, uh, a large, soft area of sand just over an out- a rock outcropping. It ran for some, some miles. So reported that back duly. And yet, even within the regiment, that information did not get passed, and we wound up sticking most of our ammo trucks from the support squadron because that terrain information didn't get passed back.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know about that, but I certainly remember the other piece of it, which I think is related, is how so many people think that the desert is nothing but sunny and hot. And I certainly remember right. it being very cold, very windy, uh, at times rainy, and just, you know, it had a host of environmental harsh qualities that, that don't necessarily go with what you may assume in the open desert.
1: And, you know, our regimental fighting concept depended on air cavalry. I mean, that was part of the concept. We were going to find them with, with air scouts pushed way out, engaging with artillery, and then bring up the, uh, uh, the armored force, the heavy force. That didn't pan out. There was so little flying weather that uh, our 4th Squadron was, was grounded for about half the operation
0: we all have our war stories. I'm sure you have an interesting or funny story from Operation Desert Storm. Now, would you mind sharing one with us?
1: We're, pr- we're a pretty loose unit. We had a lot of uh, laughs around the command post. and I think between the squadrons and uh, regiments, there were some, some funny things that happened, and there were some things that uh, that only appeared funny after they had happened. But uh, one of my recollections from Desert Storm was bringing on attachments and, and supporting units, and the fact that they were often uh, gassed at what we were going to do. Uh, they did not uh, come to the desert in order to be in the leading formation of the 7th of the Corps. And in some cases, uh, they had to, to be uh, cajoled and counseled quite a bit to uh, uh, infuse them with the proper cavalry spirit. Uh, our MP company came rather late, a good MP company out of Alabama, the 214th MP company. They were funny to me because they resisted the, the notion of going forward with the uh, covering force uh, for about a week. It took a lot of counseling by the Sergeant Major and myself to, uh, to convince them this was a good deal, and they were going to cover themselves with glory. But what their reference point was that they were brigades of regular Army MPs in theater. And those guys were, uh, were back at the ports and on the routes and and uh, operating in, in depth. The guys who had just been mobilized were going to be asked to be ahead of every MP company in the Army out there with 7th Corps. So, uh, you know, retrospectively, that's that's kind of funny.
0: You know, as I think back, I certainly have a host of them because, as you can imagine, as the as the youngest member of the formation, lowest ranking, newest, I had a host of challenges in front of me and learning my way around the organization. And, and learning about the army. And so seemingly everything that I experienced probably had a funny component to it, at least to somebody. But I do remember it was it was during the ground invasion, and there was a point in time where we had we had taken control of a group of prisoners the long and short of it was there was a group that was moved and then there was a lot of sense of urgency that we had to get going because as you know the tempo was there we had to keep moving we, there was a point where there was a movement of personnel and somehow there was two prisoners that were unaccounted for and there was a realization as we were called over to take accountability of these two guys and we needed to move them from point A to point B and it wasn't an option that they were gonna walk uh, and so we were all kind of standing there looking at these two guys who we had handcuffed, uh, flex tied. And we said, well, we can't leave them here. You know, Hire's telling us to move them. And of course the, you know, as, as predicted the the young soldier there from the small town uh, recommends that we uh, strap them to the vehicle. I said, you know, we say, well, we can't do that either. Uh, we don't know what to do with them. And so they say, Oh, here's what you're going to do. You're going to get, in, you're going to get in the back of the Bradley. Well, the one fellow that was supposed to be back there with me moved to the other track and they essentially put me in the back of this Bradley. Now, mind you, this thing is cubed out with ammunition boxes. So there is the equivalent of like two phone booths with, and, uh, and I get back by the hell hole and the driver hands me his 45. And then they put these two prisoners on the jump seat that's right by the door and one sitting on the other one's lap. And then they close this door. So now you're in this, this dark Bradley with only the light, the sunlight coming through the Periscope vision blocks. And we proceed to start driving and you know, sir, I mean, the back of this, Bradley, I mean, you might as well just be getting uh, thrown around in a clothes dryer. Right. So we're bashing back and forth and sand is coming in the sides and it's dusty and it's hot. I mean, we're practically falling in each other's arms and I've got the pistol and just looking at these guys eyes. You know, I don't know who was more who was more intimidated by the whole, whole experience, me or them. Uh, but nevertheless, we moved these two guys this requisite amount of distance and opened up the door and I couldn't have been more happy to get them out of the vehicle. Uh, But as I was in that process of moving from point A to point B, I couldn't help but think, where the hell was I and what the hell was I doing?
1: Yeah, that's funny. And I was very conscious at the time that the whole regiment was green. This is our first combat in many years. So there were going to be some experiences like that where you're making it up as you go along and seeing a lot of things for the first time. Uh, We also got some funny stories out of of, uh, prisoners who spoke English, Uh, a couple of whom had been uh, college students in the United States and had come back to Iraq and been Caught up in the uh, in the mobilization, and they were funny because they were so happy to see us. I had a letter from one of the tankers in Second Squadron relating how uh, the first prisoners they came across uh, bothered his tank commander because they were climbing up on the tank and kissing him. <laughs> uh, they were that happy to be out from under the thumb of of, uh, of their own chain command.
0: Well, I'll tell you, these two these two young men and myself in the back of this tight, dusty, hot Bradley, I think we were just wanting to get the hell out of there. <laughs> Okay, sir. Well, that, that wraps up the the formal questions. Sir, what I'd like to do now run a quick speed round. And the concept sure. here is that I will walk us through just a series of chronological memory points. And what I'd like to do is I'll state the chronological milestone and then I'd ask for you to just give me your recollection of kind of what was going on for you. What you were, what, what were you thinking at the time? What were you doing? Just some sort of a glimpse into the eyes of the regimental commander. Uh, and then I will counter that with what was going on for me as, as the regiment's youngest soldier. So the first chronological milestone, sir, is, is pre-deployment.
1: Well, before we were notified... I was dealing with a lot of rumors and a lot of uh, discomfort in the in the regiment. The soldiers were not sure what was going on. They had suspicions, as I said earlier, that, that we were going to be deployed. So I spent a whole lot of time just circulating through the regiment, talking to soldiers about what I knew, and what we didn't know, and what we had to be prepared to do. Uh, related to that was the matter of family readiness. Uh, we had family support groups back then, but they weren't well developed or evenly developed, and there were a lot of uh, there was a lot of action going on pre deployment about figuring out how the rear detachment was going to work and how those family support groups would
0: function. Yes, sir. And when I think about that same time frame, well, first off, I was in basic training. I had graduated from high school that year, and so I went through basic training, one station unit training to become a cavalry scout. Uh, and so during that time, as you were wrestling with those leader problems, I was learning how to be a soldier and I was watching as the drill sergeants got very intense following August after August and and uh, Saddam's move into Kuwait everything kind of ratcheted up in basic training and it got real serious and then we went through the fall and as I got assigned and and I didn't have the luxury of picking where I was going I lucked out in landing in, in second ACR I arrived as stated December 1st and, and went wheels up with the main body on December 7th so there wasn't a whole lot of pre-deployment for me with the organization but I would add just a humorous vignette and that i showed up to first squadron on december 3rd uh, found my way literally doing the duffel bag drag i was wearing my green class a's and dragging my duffel bag up to my room where there was a bunch of strip bunks and some of my eventually to be friends they weren't very friendly that night but uh, as i did process elimination to figure out which bunk was mine no one had much to say to me because nobody wanted a, a new addition. They had completed their training. They had finalized their teams. And I think that everybody thought that adding anybody to their small team was going to maybe make them less successful. So I'll just go out on a limb and say they weren't too happy to see me. But as I did process elimination and picked which bunk was mine and started to unpack my my duffel bag, one of them looked up at me and said, don't bother unpacking that bag. Just put it in that box. And I said, oh, well, that's that's funny. What's what's going on? And He said, we leave for Saudi Arabia on Thursday. I said, OK, there a phone around here? Okay, sir. So the next milestone chronologically is, is our time in Dahran, Saudi Arabia.
1: That was a nightmare, actually. Uh, we, were, we were very fortunate to have uh, those, those uh, ships per squadron that I described. Everybody came in on his own ship, but uh, things were moving so fast, the theater was not prepared to receive us. And I'm sure that you have recollections from the first squadron because the first squadron got the worst of it. But they were flying soldiers in far ahead of their equipment, the uh, uh, intermediate staging area. That the first infantry division was running was inadequate to accept those soldiers, and we had people sleeping on the ground. Uh, We had people sleeping on tent pads that were uncovered but fairly dry. There were long, long lines for chow and even latrines. My job at that time was to was to push very hard on theater and corps to try to uh, to slow down the movement of troops into theater and to hurry up getting the things we needed so we could clear out of the intermediate staging area and get up to our uh, area of operations.
0: I think we have a, a commonality there and that you use the word nightmare. And I would say that Daharan for me was also nightmarish uh, for me as the, as the youngest lowest ranking member of my troop. You can only imagine that as the requirements for details came down uh, from the squadron and through the troop, you can imagine whose name made it to the top of each of those lists. So if there was anything that was undesirable to be done, you better believe that this private was the man on the case. So I frequently found myself being sent to the latrines to burn the bear and the barrels yeah. had to burn. It was, a you know, an austere environment and the bur- barrels had to burn and you had to use diesel to burn them. And the diesel would go out if you didn't continue to expose it to new air. So not only did you have to burn it with diesel, but you had to stir it as you burned it. Otherwise it would go out. And if it went out, well, then you had to light it again. And there was, uh, you know, flies and everything else. And you can only imagine. And that was a uh, pretty common chore of mine while in Daharan. So I was, I was ready to get the hell out of there.
1: Yeah, yeah, that goes back to Vietnam and probably before that. We made a lot of progress in the army in many things, but not in that.
0: Okay, sir. The next uh, chronological milestone then is our time out in the Saudi Arabian desert. That was a, it. Was a great relief to get out of the
1: ports and be into an area of our own. I found the troops exhilarated by it, and we'd come with a training plan. As I mentioned, we're training multi echelon uh, you know, almost every day. There's limited how many how many miles I could let you guys put on the tracks. We we're productively employed. We got a. False report right after the air campaign started that an Iraqi uh, unit had crossed the border to our north, and we flexed to the regiment. We didn't alert, scrambled out of our camps, moved to defensive positions to to intercept that unit. You probably will call it. It was a great shakeout for the regiment, and uh, it just built a lot of confidence among us that that we could do that. There were some irritations, too. Uh, We were first in country, so support was not adequate for a long time. But uh, by and large, I remember that as a Is a good time, at which I did a whole lot of um, pressing again on core to get us support, but where we did get to make good preparations for the operation.
0: Yes, sir. And I definitely remember finding myself on the other side of the world in the middle of the Saudi Arabian desert and really just kind of doing some self-reflection of how did I get here and what is this place? Who are these people learning my team? Because again, I, I deployed with a group of strangers out in the open desert we certainly did training as you described sir but but that could only fill so many hours of the day and so there was still a lot of waiting and we just had really no idea of what was happening, what was coming. I mean, certainly our leaders would keep us informed. It wasn't like we were unnecessarily in the dark, but they only knew what they knew. Uh, there was a little bit of, as I recall, kind of the transistor radio of sorts that you could listen to a broadcast at times. But there was just the harshness of the the elements i remember the wind and the heat and the cold and you know the scorpions and snakes and lizards and you know all the different kind of stuff that that is out in the desert and lots of waiting lots of getting to know the team and then just a little bit of balance with training still a little bit of of stir craziness and for me personally a lot of practicing unmasking
1: yeah if i can add that's that's an aspect of deployments and operations that we don't address formally i don't think in doctrine that is how do you occupy your time while you're while you're waiting for the force to may not be a problem future operations. I don't know, but we had shipped you know, sports equipment and uh, videotapes and all kinds of things down there to Saudi Arabia, not really anticipating how long we'd have to wait for the operation. To, uh, but you do have to think of those things. I remember there was there were active sports and that that kind of uh, business, and that I had to uh, finally forbid flag football because we were getting so many injuries. The orthopedic bill was too high. But how you spend your time. Especially when you're limited with fuel, ammunition, and track miles or flying
0: hours, deserves some thought. Yes, sir. And I remember, I remember very clearly playing some very aggressive flag football, and I also remember getting very good at the card game Spades. Okay, I sir. Got one more. I, yeah, yeah, go for another it.
1: Another great story from this. I know we're running on, but they, uh, we're, we're talking about funny things that happened. We had one of our soldiers, B Troop soldiers, as a matter of fact, got injured. I think during during all of that, he was down in a in an army hospital near the ports and General Frank's corps commander came around to see this this. This uh, guy he came around to see soldiers, and I believe the man's name was McLemore, anyway, he got to McLemore's bed, and I uh, chatted him up, him how things were going, how he was feeling. He was feeling much better. So General Frank said uh, casually, uh, uh, is there anything I can do for you? And McLemore said, yes, sir, you can get me back to my unit today. You're on a helicopter? How about taking me? And to General Frank's credit, he did it. Got <laughs> the soldier discharge, put him on his helicopter,
0: flew him back to B Troop. Wow. Okay, sir, the next uh, next chronological waypoint then would be crossing the berm.
1: Uh, it was a great relief to be going. Uh, everybody was anxious to, to go. We went early, one the day before the operation was to begin. And the idea was to push uh, a security bubble out past the berm so the engineers could clear lanes for the wheel vehicles, particularly those of the two divisions that were Following us, so that initial move for us was earlier than for most. I remember getting into Iraq, making first contact with a few of the border police, and uh, coming across the first Iraqi positions while the engineers worked. It was really sort of a confidence-building uh, part of the operation because we were all out there doing what we're supposed to do.
0: Yes sir and I definitely remember just incredible anticipation. One of the things I didn't mention about the open desert but I'll never forget was the stars in the sky. Being yeah. so far out there, so far away from any ambient light and the the sky was just like a circuit board. And I remember sitting out there in an OPOP OP with one of my battle buddies and uh and we were we were going to roll in the next day and just talking about that and the anticipation. And then I remember, uh, and going from that position of a lot of yes, training, but a lot of waiting, waiting around too, uh, to all of a sudden being in the, you know, sprint and go, 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 uh, always moving, but in these episodic moments of kind of chaos and contact, uh, and it, and it was always very managed, at least from my perspective, it never felt like the unit was, you know, wasn't doing exactly what it was supposed to do. But from, uh, from the eyes of a, of a young soldier who was in the back of the Bradley, you know, I'm not. Looking at a map, uh, I'm not even seeing the open terrain, for that matter. You're just getting thrown around and and told on a moment's notice to to dismount with the machine gun or to prepare to reload the tow or any number of things that are happening uh, in and out of contact. And then, as I had described before, uh, throwing track while in contact was quite quite an exciting event and and not a great no way. Doubt. Okay, sir. So the next one, and this kind of goes with what I was just hitting on a little bit, but the the rapid movement and maneuver across the open desert, and then that kind of sequence of being in and out of contact
1: met my expectations. Really, it was a huge movement of of, uh, of equipment and people, and we were two up, two back uh, when we when we started out. We had the aviation squadron in front of us, but we had second and third squadron committed. First squadron was following uh, on the on the regimental right east. The support squadron Apache's were uh, were also in depth, but I had anticipated that the movement was going to be at about ten miles an hour average. We had to do that because engineer equipment and, and guns had to keep up. You can't run away from your base of fire when they are maneuvering a force. And although the M1 tank and Bradley are very fast, strikers are very fast, uh, you you can't outdrive what your your base of fire can do. So I paced the movement. Of the regiment to the movement of the field artillery brigade, essentially. They had trained with us, so they moved as fast as they could. So we had to orient on the enemy, but also on the moving friendly troops behind us. And we could not run so far ahead of the divisions that they could not move up to uh, support us or exploit the advantages that we developed in our own fighting. So
0: it was kind of a tricky movement. Yes, sir, and I certainly remember, and it's and it's neat hearing you describe uh, the the tempo and the synchronization as as well as the mutual support aspect. All of which makes a ton of sense to me in my current rank and position. But certainly at that time, you know, it was a little bit mysterious, as it felt like it. It sometimes we would be moving as if we were chasing somebody, and then we would, and then there'd be other times where we'd be sitting still, and it would seem like you know, kind of the world was erupting around us, but we weren't going anywhere. When you were set, you were r- really kind of urging to move. And and when you were moving, certainly as a young soldier in the back of the Bradley, you don't really know. And it's not like there's situational awareness reports uh, being shared other than what you hear over the CVC by monitoring the net. Um, and so it was interesting because there there wasn't a whole lot of situational awareness for a young soldier, just a matter of being in contact or not being stopped or moving, uh, certainly dismounting to a to attend to to prisoners or security or to uh, inspect bunkers and and look for things. That happened a couple of different times. I certainly remember, I think the one thing that stood out to me in terms of being on the move was uh, reloading a tow in contact. You know, it was really interesting because I'm sure my gunner, who will remain nameless, would say that I probably pulled the toe out at the wrong angle. But I think that maybe his uh, bezel ring was just a little bit off. Either way, as that tube came back with a great deal of adrenaline, uh, it kind of lodged itself in the cargo hatch. And so you've oh got God. contact going on around us. And this expended 71 Echo tube is lodged between the back of the hammerhead and the far corner of the cargo hatch. And I'm pulling this thing with all I I got and the gunner screaming in the net at me because he's got that toe up i mean he's he's sitting uh, sitting duck at that point point. and so i finally got it out got a new missile up there dropped the hatch pounded on the on the door and, and he was back in business but there was a moment there where you know i felt similar to those stories where you know somebody picks a telephone pole up off a off a child or something right i mean i was i was trying to pull this thing out with all i got and and i finally got it so that was high adventure Okay, sir. the uh, The next one was the was the forward passage of lines. This is one that I think historically uh, certainly has some, you know, some aspect of of credence to the story of the regiment. I mean, a forward passage of lines in a in a combat environment, passing uh, First Infantry Division uh, through our lines. Now, what do you remember about that, sir? I
1: remember it was a tough mission. Uh, oops, uh, uh, a um, an operation that, uh, we did at night in contact and uh, with a lot of. Um, Adjustment as the as the uh, operation took place. Uh, one of our major successes was uh, getting that done without without fractricide uh, as the division passed through us. But it was difficult. It required a lot of leader to leader talk uh, between the deputy commander and the uh, assistant division commander. The- 1st Infantry Division, it required great discipline on the line of contact where you guys were, marking lanes and uh, passing the word about who was, was coming. And there's a uh, a, a tricky uh, element of, of handing off the artillery. You know, guys who were shooting for us began shooting for the other unit. We had a lot of time to get it done because the 1st Infantry Division was a long way behind us. And a better passage of lines would have happened earlier and faster. This was supposed to happen at the six zero East we moved to the 70 and the 7-3 because the 1st Infantry Division had taken so long to come forward and had to refuel and a number of, of other things. But I remember it as um, it being an exciting night. Uh, I was uh, behind the 3rd Squadron with the Artillery Brigade Commander uh, managing that business. And in retrospect, I realized that we had put a lot of emphasis on passage of lines and the related task of uh, breaching an obstacle back in our training. The platoon leaders, the troop commanders knew that drill pretty well. Marked the lanes very well, and you know did, did a great job. The elements that passed through us did, did a good job themselves. I know one of those commanders very well, and he was in awe of the preparations that our soldiers made for that passage. Lines, lanes were marked. People were ready to hand over. Information flowed. It was pretty good. For recall, these were all green troops that night in contact. So it was difficult, it was stressful, but uh, was very successful thanks to coming back to NCO leadership and, and small unit excellence. Thanks to the guys who were doing it on the line of contact.
0: I certainly remember that. I remember that operation. I, I didn't understand the significance of it. I didn't understand the the size and, you know, scope of it really until about five years later when I was a West Point cadet in military history class. It was the first time that I fully started to appreciate what the 2nd Armored Cavalry Regiment had done in Desert Storm. But at that point in time, as a young private on the ground, I know that it was people were moving with a sense of urgency and precision. I remember the lane marking. I remember a lot of preparations and i had never seen anything like this before. And again, new to the unit and new to these particular skills and drills drills, uh, none of which had been introduced in basic training for uh, Forward Passage Alliance, let alone in contact at night. But I remember there being a lot of action and activity, a lot of preparation, a lot of very deliberate direction by section sergeants and platoon sergeants and all as you've described. And then all of a sudden it got really busy and really chaotic as you started to have all kinds of different vehicles moving in around what was what was once a reasonably spread out, tactically acceptable environment. It just seemed like it got very very crowded and very active for a period of time, as you would imagine and, and as you remember, sir.
1: Yeah, there's, it's interesting, too, in that, you know, the ethos of the U.S. Army, certainly of the U.S. cavalry, is mission orders and mission execution. You know, uh, freedom of action in small unit leaders. There are times when directive control is necessary. It's the only thing that will keep you safe and make you effective where you must direct, you know, very small actions like passage lines to a specific lane. And your leaders have got to be able to step between those modes and understand when one is appropriate and when is not.
0: And, sir, the next chronological uh, marker here is the our operations in northern Iraq, the humanitarian service mission in northern Iraq that we got diverted to. That was a huge uh, motivation problem. Uh, For me, uh, the troopers, you know, had done their
1: duty in in the attack, defeated the people in front of them, passed into reserve, and the war was over. And all the talk then was about going back to Saudi Arabia and uh, and shipping home. And we got this additional mission to go up to the Euphrates line and observe the ceasefire activities there. And so... uh, It was a relief. Again, the soldiers picked it up uh, enthusiastically, but it was a big change to um, to reorient on doing that other mission. And it was pretty difficult. It was about a 100-mile march, as I recall. We came in and replaced elements of the 82nd and 101st Divisions, and they were light forces, so we were going to do it completely differently. And our soldiers witnessed a lot of brutality on the part of the Iraqis against their own people, the Iraqi army against their own people. There was an uprising in the Euphrates Valley, as you may recall. My principal concern is protecting our own soldiers and also dealing with the number of refugees who came out of those towns and transited our AO heading down to Basra or Saudi Arabia.
0: It's great to hear that you've understood and saw and and uh, and considered the morale issues at that point because certainly I remember at least at the at the private level, all that we were thinking was, Hey, first in, first out. Here we were, felt like we were on our way back down to uh, Saudi Arabia, and then at least as the story went across the ranks, uh, they had this emerging border mission. And and here you had the, the ACE border patrol outfit in the United States Army just happened to be available. And so they gave us uh, the diversion to head up there. I do remember getting up there and just being Really, kind of amazed. I talked already about the the terrain and the nature and just the aspect, the environmental aspects of the open desert. And we got up there, and just you know, completely different environmental characteristics. A lot of rolling hills and scrub brush and standing water and sand gnats, and just it was just a really miserable place to sit still in. And we had to do a lot yeah. a lot of sitting still. Yeah, the gnats were awful, uh, and it was mud. You know, we'd come out of the sand, we were now getting vehicles mired.
1: In, uh, in in real mud, and um, yeah, say it was a, a difficult mission. We also it was very active when we arrived there. We were dealing with a lot of civilian casualties that probably didn't didn't register too much in First Squadron. But the night we pulled in there, our aid station was one of the first things that went in on the ground, and it was immediately swamped with uh, with wounded civilians and, and women in labor and uh, injured children and all that. Stuff. It was, it was an interesting, difficult mission.
0: Okay, sir, in and on a high note, redeployment. Yeah, uh,
1: redeployment was uh, a great relief. Uh, it was, uh, you know, we went back to King Khalid Military City, KKMC, out of uh, the Euphrates Valley. We really were. Uh, we did get the first in, first out treatment uh, once they were done. Uh, so we went first in Seventh Corps, but I remember that there was great relief when we got back to Saudi Arabia. We went to Camp 1 for most of our redeployment in Jubail, same place we'd shipped into. Uh, and there were Phones and there was good food and there were uh, recreational facilities, but there was also a whole lot of work in getting vehicles repainted, downloaded, uh, prepared for transportation. It was busy, busy days, but uh, morale being very high because everybody knew we were going home.
0: Yes, sir, and I and I remember the same, just being being on a on a real high in terms of in getting to to really uh, start to think about what was next and 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 try to make sense of everything that you had been through, sir. The one thing I wanted to ask you before before we wrap that up. And could I ask you, how, how was your sleep management across that time period, 82 hours or 100 hours? How did you manage your rest plan or was there one?
1: Yeah, we had a rest plan. We'd learned that at the, uh, at the CTCs and, and the pattern of operations facilitated that. I, uh, we had deputy commander ran the TAC, XO ran the uh, main, and they had sleep plans with the senior operations reps. I slept when I could, and I was getting six hours of sleep a night. I had a little little tent thrown up next to the taxi CP, and except for the night we did the passenger lines, I got at least six hours sleep, and, and I was conscious of the need to do that.
0: Yes, sir. Well, that's you know that's one of the greatest challenges, as you know, uh, of maneuvers and of uh, demanding operations is just balancing that that rest plan because sleep is a weapon, and so something that we struggle with today. But I think you're exactly spot on. I I remember I remember certainly. Uh, you know, falling asleep in the back of the Bradley when it would be stopped or not. Or, you know, because I think that that for, for us, that not knowing when you're moving next, not yeah. knowing when you're stopping, not knowing there's just kind of this perpetual state of, well, you just need to remain ready. And then, you know, you can just close your eyes. And then as things start happening, you open them. I've always admired the way some soldiers can, you know, sleep when they get the time. Yes, I sir. Can do that very easily, but <laughs> a lot of people can do it. Yeah, I think I, what I always said was the only thing I need to sleep is permission. Yeah.
1: When I was a squadron commander in, in, uh, 3rd uh, Armored Cavalry Regiment. We had a couple of medics from William Beaumont Hospital come down and do a sleep deprivation study on our training and reforger operations. And they came up with some really interesting stuff. I mean, they had the statistics that showed the error rate uh, in a rested unit and a tired unit or arrested officer and a tired officer. And the, uh, the way in which uh, all soldiers begin to slow down and make mistakes at a certain point when they haven't had sleep. So as you were saying, sleep really is an element of combat
0: power. I will pass it over to you, sir, for any final thoughts.
1: Well, I, it was a great uh, uh, challenge, opportunity, and honor to, to uh, fight with the 2nd Army Cavalry Regiment Desert Storm. As a Vietnam veteran, I uh, took great pleasure in the overall ready scene, the overall readiness of the Army. At that point, we had made great strides from the 1970s until 1991. All units of the professional army that went into Desert Storm, and for that matter, just cause in Panama, were ready for the challenge and did superbly well for inexperienced troops. There's a lesson there to you guys on active duty today. There's nothing more important than maintaining training readiness and personnel readiness, and I know you guys are are uh, oriented hard on that. There's no better unit to do that than the uh, than the Second Cavalry.
0: That's always been the case. Yes, sir. Well, thank you so much. And and for our listeners out there, I mean, what, a, what an absolute treat and treasure to be able to hear from Lieutenant General Retired Holder, uh, formerly the 65th Colonel of the Regiment and the Regimental Commander during Operation Desert Shield and Desert Storm. Uh, we've talked today about so many important leader lessons that are absolutely pertinent today. Uh, we talked about training proficiency. We talked about discipline. We talked about leadership at the small unit level, being prepared and and being confident, having families ready, uh, we talked about the logistical complexities, of, and we talked about the real hardships of a soldier at ground level. And uh, and while I find some humor in it today, I'll tell you some of it was not so humorous when I was doing it. But it made me stronger and made me better. And at the end of the day, that's uh, that's part of the military experience. I think in closing, uh, it, it's it's right and and proper uh, on this 30th anniversary of the ground invasion for Operation Desert Storm that we do take a moment just to recognize the the seven dragoons that did not come back from that operation. A Sergeant Nels Moeller, a Sergeant Dodge Powell, sergeant william strenlow corporal james mccoy specialist james miller jr specialist thomas Jurrell, and pfc aaron howard so certainly our prayers go out to their families and our prayers go out to all those living dragoons out there who served honorably in desert storm and desert shield for that matter uh, just hats off to you out there wherever you are and just know that the 65th colonel of the regiment Uh, Lieutenant General Retired Holder, and the 81st Colonel of the Regiment, uh, myself, Colonel Joe Ewers. uh, Gratefully appreciate your service to this regiment and to our nation. And, sir, again, thank you so much for your time today. It was a a real treat. My pleasure. All the best. This is Dragoon Six, signing off.